Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Career Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Avila. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Jeremy De La Martyr, and he's an associate professor of education. And what's really exciting to me about this episode is I've been talking about networking a lot lately. So you, if you've listened to this podcast before, you've probably heard me talk ad nauseum about how much I love to network on social media. I just recorded an, another episode that's a specific networking episode that's going to premiere at the end of February with Amanda Pollock, whose episode just preceded this one. And we've been talking about networking and social media networking like crazy. I love it. And this episode is a direct result from that. I wanted to interview somebody that I followed on social media. So I threw out a tweet asking who wanted to be on the podcast. And that's how we got the guest for this episode. And even further, I threw out another treat, tweet looking at um, trying to expand research. And Dr. De La Marta responded to that one too. So we're going to maybe start on some research opportunities in that future. So just another plug for networking on social media. It really works. This episode is proof of that. So this episode is Dr. Jeremy De La Martyr, and we talk about his crazy ride to being an associate professor of education. He started out wanting to do one thing, ended up having a cancer diagnosis that moved him into um, a different realm of doing music. And then from there, it just kind of snowballs into a lot of different life changes and challenges and certain things that kind of propelled him forward and eventually put him into getting a PhD in education. So enjoy the ride with Dr. Jeremy De La Marta. Welcome to the Career Journey Podcast, where we explore exciting careers and how to get them from the people who flipped it. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Avila. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy. And, and then is this uh, mostly a Q&A? Kind um, of thing? And usually it just ends up with people start talking because you talk about yourself. And so I find that people just start going and I usually don't have to step in that much. Um, essentially, the reason I started this podcast was so my role is part professor, professor of psychology, part um, academic advisor. Okay. So I would talk to students a lot about career options, how to get into careers. And I noticed a lot of misconceptions about how careers work. Like they couldn't think about money or they couldn't think about, you know, certain other decisions that sometimes go into careers because it's supposed to be this idealistic goal. Um, and I tried to tell students over and over all the same advice that everybody gives and you can just see the blank stares. They're not fully comprehending. Um, so as we know in psychology, stories work better than just prescriptive advice. So I started the podcast to show them the different decisions that went into people who have the careers that they want. Um, yeah. So, and sometimes not even decisions, sometimes just serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. Or circumstance <laughs> or um, yeah. Uh, yeah. My, I have an interesting story. So. Awesome. The twists and turns, the different things like mine, I was kind of forced into one way because somebody like left a position right at the right moment and I had to go a completely different route yeah. and it worked out really well. So I love stories like that. Cause that's exactly what I'm trying to show is it's not always 
perfectly linear and it doesn't always match your plans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't have plans. So that, that was part of it. Oh, yeah. Story. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, you'll hear it all. It's a good story. <laughs> awesome. So now you're a professor of education, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what's that like? Uh, being a professor of education, it's, I get to teach teachers. Uh, okay. is essentially what I do. So I teach uh, pre, mostly pre-service teachers, we call them. These are folks that um, want to be, uh, they want to teach. And we have our undergraduates who are, you know, 20, 21 years old, who are, mm-hmm. this is what they've always wanted to do. And then we have even more people in our, our master's program who are career changers. Okay. And they're coming, since we're in the Seattle area, they're coming from Microsoft or from, Boeing or they're they're police officers who want to get to kids before they enter the criminal (laughs) justice system. Right. uh, We've had, we had a retired NFL kicker who had a degree in biology that he'd never gotten to use and he really (laughs) wanted to teach. Right. Nice. Um, we had a former MBA center who, when he was in college, wasn't allowed to major in teaching because his D1 college basketball career wouldn't let him student teach. And so he'd had to put it on hold. And then he came back to school, wow. you know, got his degree and, and is teaching now. Uh, people whose kids have left the house, right? People at all life stages. And that's actually the more common route now. Yeah, uh, at least at our university, it, you, it used to be what we call the uh, an alternative route, and it's now the norm. Okay. Uh, and as you when you hear my story, that's what I did. I was a career changer who came into teaching later in life in my thirties, and uh, and so that's very interesting. So most of the students I work with aren't undergrads. Most of them are these people who have reached a point in their lives where they say, "I want to do something different." And that's really exciting. So that's, that's a great joy to walk alongside those folks. Yeah. I'm I'm happy to hear that people are transitioning into teaching careers because most of the time, at least on the internet, I hear about the opposite people that are leaving teaching careers to do something different, like work in tech and at Microsoft. Well, that's Um, happening too. Yeah. yeah. So it's (laughs) nice to hear that it's happening the other direction though. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, part of it in Washington state, we're, we're not, top of the heat, but we, teachers actually have a decent starting salary. Nice. Uh, here. Uh, I mean, um, could it be more? Yes, but it's not, you know, I, I hear about some other states where they're starting at, you know, $30,000 a year and yeah. it's, it's not that you can actually live on a teacher's salary. Oh, nice. Uh, in Washington. So that's good. Now you're going to have a lot of people moving to Washington to be teachers. <laughs> Come we we welcome you. <laughs> we could use you. Awesome. So, yeah. And do you primarily teach um, like K through 12 teachers or teachers for higher education or a little bit of both? So in our certification programs, those are K-12. Okay. Uh, however, we also have um, the College of Education where I teach has a master's in education program and that would be suited for, um, so there's a master's in teaching, which is a certificate program okay. for K-12, but there's also the master's in education, which is more for folks who want to go into policy perhaps, or mm-hmm. uh, maybe administration, or they want to go into curriculum development, maybe for I don't know, Amazon, uh, for example, they're always looking for curriculum developers. And so okay. uh, that kind of thing. And then we have a, uh, we have some doctoral courses, not through the College of Ed, but that are affiliated with us that offer EDDs and PhDs in um, admin, higher ed leadership and stuff like that. So we okay. do have that. I primarily teach 
in the certification programs. Okay. For K through 12. It's interesting that there's so many different types of education and teaching physicians basically that you can go into now, like you mentioned policy, um, Mm -hmm. or curriculum development, and those are getting bigger. Am I right? Or were they always, they are. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, we just, at the undergraduate level, we just started an entirely new degree program, uh, educational studies, which is not a certificate program. And it's designed exclusively for those people who want to go into educational settings outside the K-12 classroom. So maybe they want to go overseas and, and teach English or something. And so they need a, a bit of a background in in curriculum and instruction or uh, the big players, Amazon is hiring a ton of instructional designers. So they need people who understand the basics of instructional design and lesson sequencing, but for uh, creating LMS work for their vendors. <laughs> yeah. uh, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's space company is down the road from us here. They're hiring uh, people to design learning modules for their workers. So you can really get into any industry you want to get into with a background in instructional design or learning. And so we are expanding our offerings to reach those folks as well and to serve those needs, not just workforce needs, but also the legitimate humanistic needs. You know, right. that we have to be able to teach in a broad variety of settings, not just in classrooms. Yeah, and that landscape is changing dramatically right now because you even have people that are just teaching online with no teaching background. Um, but yeah. tons of different ways of doing instruction. And like you're saying, like with all the different companies now wanting to do teaching and, um, you know, to teach their employees in different ways and things right. like that, there's a ton of different avenues. Yeah, there's now. a lot of HR applications for, okay. for training. Um, and I, I want to give this plug. There are people who have that sort of a natural teacher tendency, yeah. right? We have this, this idea that, oh, people are born to teach. And certainly there are some people who have maybe the patience or the, the soft skills to right. be effective. <laughs> uh, that being said, um, you would benefit greatly if you're one of those people from having a, a bit, you don't necessarily need to get a certificate if you're teaching online tutoring or what have you, but just getting some lessons in assessment theory, right? Yeah. Or in um, just effective lesson sequencing or, or some basic learning, learning psychology, right? I mean, just some of the basics and understanding, oh, here's how we build ideas on top of ideas. And again, some people intuit some of that, but everybody could benefit who wants to be in a related field would benefit from maybe not a degree program necessarily, but there are modules you can do here and there. Yeah. Um, because I believe that you know, anybody can learn to be an effective teacher at, at a basic level, but it is a skill set that you can practice and get better at. It's it's not just a personal disposition. It's an actual <laughs> skill set that you can yes. practice and improve at. So and I always think it's funny as a kind of an educator myself in one way, it's it's interesting. Teaching tends to be something that people think you can just do. If you have enough right. knowledge, you can just teach, right? And it's like, well, I've been a student, so I can teach. And my analogy is always like, okay, well, I've watched a million movies, so now I can be a director. Like, there's still a lot of things that you need to learn and uncover. Like, I had to learn how people learn in general. That's part of what I study in cognitive psychology. And it blew my mind that some things were not the way that I naturally would have thought, (laughs) you know, like the way that people learn can be very different from what we think. Like we think we can just talk to people and they learn it. Not exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're stepping into 
dangerous ground here because we're actually approaching my field of study at this point oh. in time and we <laughs> run the risk of me going off on a long <laughs> a long ramp but i will say you, you mentioned that people say oh I've, I've been a student so i know how to teach and it is true i mean uh you know, uh, when people come to us as undergrads, they've spent 16 years of their lives right. in classrooms. Uh, but the interesting thing is they've been acculturated into the the student position. So think of it as a real estate thing. When they walk into the room, they've always owned or, or operated in the same section of real estate, right? Their, their seats always face one way. Right. And the teacher's real estate is that sort of rarefied area around the desk or the blackboard or the whiteboard or what have you. And we're asking people in relatively short amount of time to switch and say, okay, you've been here and you know how it looks from here, but now you have to be here. And they realize pretty quickly, I saw how it looked from the, from the audience, right? From the yeah. audience, but I never knew what went on behind the scenes. And a lot goes on behind the a scenes. A lot goes on behind the scenes. And so uh, there's a sociologist in the seventies named Dan Lordy, who did this large um, sort of um, phenomenological study of uh, the process of becoming a teacher. And he, he said, yes, if you've been a student, you know something of teaching, but he called it an apprenticeship of observation. And he's really quick to highlight all the things that doesn't show you. Uh, and yeah. that, but you think you have the whole thing. So my, uh, my field of research is actually on pre-service teachers' expectations of teaching. When they walk into a classroom and they think they know what it's going to be because they've been students and they've right. seen half of it, right? They've, um, they've watched Freedom Riders, right? Or, or Dead Poet <laughs> Society. And so they think they know this is how it's going to be. And inevitably those expectations are partly, right? They've seen glimpses of it, but they don't have the full picture, right? And that if you're not careful, that can lead to burnout and disillusionment and a called practice shock, right? So uh, my research has been on kind of quantifying what, were, what are their expectations what is the reality? How, in what ways do they differ? Can we measure it? Can we predict it? And once we have that information, how do we programmatically set them up for success, right? How do we help them uh, work through that cognitive dissonance of, I thought it was going to be this, but it turned out to be that. Right. And how do we make that into a place of growth? Right. And it, it actually a thing of uh, where they came out stronger on the other end. So that's been my research and it's been, that's it's awesome. been really fun. Well, I experienced <laughs> that. I mean, that, I, I went through that as a, a pre-service teacher back in the day where I thought I had it all figured out. Cause I, I know what schools are like. I've been <laughs> in schools. <laughs> yep. Or, I mean, a lot of us think, especially if we want to be teachers, we've been looking at it from an, a lens of thinking we wanted to be a teacher. So we've think we've been looking at it from the other angle, but it's only when you get in that area, I feel like that you can really truly start to understand what all comes with it. So we have such a cultural, there's a, such an existing cultural discourse about teaching. So I think about that image of the apple on the teacher's desk. And my guess is that at least in a, uh, the American students that are listening to us, everybody's familiar with that image, right? The apple on the teacher's desk. Yeah. Has anyone actually ever seen an apple on a teacher's <laughs> desk? No, we have this image of teaching that is completely divorced from the reality. Of, right. I've never seen an apple on a teacher's desk. And so there's some fascinating studies that that work with uh, pre-service teachers and say, draw a picture of a classroom. And so they, they draw and almost inevitably, it's always teacher centric. There's a teacher, almost always female, almost always in a skirt. And they're usually standing in front of a, a whiteboard or a blackboard 
yeah. like pointing at something. But then you ask them, how did your teachers dress? Well, not like that. Did they stand in front <laughs> of a blackboard or whiteboard? Well, no, not very often. Why did you draw that? I don't know. I have this picture of a teacher. Stereotype. But where did I get that picture? Right. So, and so it's from films and books and, and just this, our larger cultural discourse that shapes our preconceived notions of what we're going to run into in the classroom, sometimes more than our actual classroom experiences shape those things. So it's a fascinating field of study about where we get these expectations and then how they differ from reality. And what do we do about that? that gulf and how do we bridge that gap to set people up for success in the classroom? Awesome. Well, I love that research, but I want to transition a little bit to talk about how you got here because you mentioned that you were one of the career changers. Mm -hmm. So where did you start before you were in education? What area (laughs) were you doing? Okay. So we have to back up a little bit and we have to go back to my senior year of high school. Uh, My plan was to go to Juilliard. I was a Mm. clarinet. I was a clarinet player. Okay. Uh, I, I was, I was, if I can say this and not sound immodest, I was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and I, I had a shot, uh, but my senior year of high school, I uh, was diagnosed with cancer okay. and part of the cancer treatments uh, involved radiation in my, in my neck area. And it killed my salivary glands, right? It Ooh. just nuked my salivary glands. And if you know anything about the clarinet, you have to keep your reed wet and so uh, I've been operating at, uh, with dry mouth essentially for the last 30 years. And it was kind of the end of my professional aspirations oh. for the clarinet. So, so I got this dream or this plan I had uh, went away. So I went off to college, uh, you know, the next year, fresh out of my, you know, my year of chemotherapy yeah. and, and not having a plan anymore because I had a plan and I had to stay local. So I had, I was going to go to Juilliard, go to New York. And I ended up going to a local uh, university in Seattle and I majored in English because I liked a girl who was an English major. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm being honest and uh, majored in English. And uh, after my third year of, of traditional undergrad, uh, it was time to register for classes for what would have been my senior year. And I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I just, and I wasn't failing. I, my grades were fine. I didn't fail out. I just could not register for class. I could not imagine going back for one more year, uh, huh. even though I was, I was doing fine. So I, I, I decided to take a, a year off. I didn't call it dropping out. I called it taking a year <laughs> off. And I got a job working uh, of all places. I got a job working at a pipe organ factory. Okay. Uh, in uh, the Seattle area that made, you know, the big monster pipe organs you see in cathedrals, like you mm-hmm. know, 40 feet tall. Um, and there's no electronics. They're all operated by like you pull a lever and it pushes a stick and it moves a rod. So there's no electronics in the entire organ. These are old school European style organs. And I'm, I helped make the pipes. We melted our own metal and formed the pipes. And so I had this job for a couple of years making pipes in a pipe organ shop. And I was planning on going back to school. Uh, and I got married really young at, at 21. And my cancer came back. And so my plans at going back to school <laughs> got thwarted by, um, you know, the return of my cancer. And so then I spent a year in chemotherapy and um, I'm happy to say that worked. I've been in remission for 25 plus 25 years. Great. Uh, so, but it thwarted my plans. Right. And so my plans <laughs> then to go again. And so, because then we had medical debt. 
right, my wife and I. And um, so that kept me from going back to school. And then my wife got promoted with her job and that took us to Portland. And she okay. got her first salary, you know, like not hourly, but she was moving up <laughs> in the retail world up into sort of, you know, corporate administration. And so I moved, we moved to Portland and she had this great new job and I had nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hadn't finished school, right? I, yeah. um, my couple dreams I'd had had been thwarted. And so I spent a couple of years, I don't know, four or five years in Portland. Let me run through the list of jobs that I had. I was <laughs> a political, like knocking on your door, canvassing for political action for about three days until I realized I hated doing that. I pumped gas because uh, <laughs> in Oregon at the time, you couldn't pump your own gas. It's the gas station attendant had to do it. So I pumped gas for a while. Uh, I taught piano lessons for many years. I got a job teaching beginning band at a sort of alternative school. Oh, I played the piano at a church. Um, I'm, a, I'm a good pianist. And so I had all these various, all of them hourly, all of them kind of just filling time. None of them really career. And I, so I spun my wheels a lot mm -hmm. for most of my twenties. And Towards the end of, I don't know, about 25, 26 years old, I started getting into writing music. So I, I was, you know, classically trained and, and all that. And I, I began writing music and I actually ended up writing a song that uh, got into a commercial. Oh, wow. Uh, because uh, one of my students' dads directed commercials. And so I wrote, I wrote some music and it got in this commercial. It's like, hey, that's kind of cool to write music, yeah. and record it and, um, you know, get, get some money from it. And so then my wife got promoted again. And that took us to Southern California, to, to okay. Dana Point, California. Nice. And so just as I was beginning to get some momentum here, I I'm, I'm teaching band, I, I'm starting to do some stuff. We move again. <laughs> we move to California. And again, I have, I'm starting over. And at that point in time, we had two really young kids. So I spent a year as a uh, stay-at-home dad. Awesome. Yeah, which was, it was great to be with my kids. We went to the beach every day. Nice. Right. Um, <laughs> No complaints about that, but I'm, I've not got the wheels turning on this whole, I like writing music thing. And uh, we were in California for a year and my wife did not like her promotion. It oh, turns out okay. that moving up was an, moving up isn't always the best thing. Yeah. Right. In fact, she and I were just talking about this, that she knows enough about herself now to know I was really, really, really good at this middle position That's and I could have stayed there for a long time and I wasn't as good at the higher position. And uh, that just comes with age, right? <laughs> I think that's a hard lesson to learn. I think yeah. we have this conception that we're always supposed to be striving for higher, but sometimes mm -hmm. that's not where you're meant to be or where you want to be. Yeah. She was happy and really good at her job at the, at the, the middle level and not as much at the upper. So we were there right. for about exactly a year. And then uh, we were, I was 28, 29 at the time. And I said, it's time to go back to school. So I started going back to school to finish my degree while I was in California, but then she quit her job and we couldn't afford to stay yeah, <laughs> in Dana exactly. Point. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, at 29 years old, uh, we moved back up to the Seattle area and moved into my parents' guest room oh. with two young kids. Uh, and we'd gone funny. from, we owned a home in Portland. And we went from owning a home in Portland that we'd sold when we moved to California. And a year later, we're living with my parents in their guest room, uh, having emptied out what little retirement savings we had to pay for the move back Yeah. and starting over at Again. 29 with, 
nothing. <laughs> I oh. mean, it was it was a humble to say it was tumbling is is an understatement. But I we moved back there so I could go back to school, and I went back to the school that I'd started at all okay. those years before for, to finish because um, I could I didn't have to transfer credits, right? So I, I could right. I could be right there. So I enrolled in school, and we moved in with my parents until uh, a house opened up in campus housing, right? A family house. So we moved back onto campus finally, and I spent a year finishing my uh, undergraduate degree in English literature, a BA in English lit. And while I was doing that, I was, um, <laughs> I drove a city bus uh, okay. because yeah, so I drove a Metro bus for, <laughs> for a couple of years uh, because it was early, like 4.30 in the morning until 9 a.m. and full benefits and unions, so it paid really well. And then I was done for the day. So then I had the rest of the day to go to school. Nice. So it, it worked pretty well. But during that time, this little composing thing that had been in the background, uh, kind of weirdly, once I left California, it kicked into high gear. And I actually ended up starting to do film scoring and oh. uh, TV scoring. And so I'm actually on IMDb with, with some oh, wow. fil film score credits on IMDb, uh, which is, uh, in retrospect is really kind of kind of funny to me but i thought that's what i wanted to do i'm going to be a film score composer and i actually for a couple years there made a living as a as a composer whether it was for you know live performance works or uh did a couple musicals etc but all the time i was finishing my degree and when i finished my degree in english lit we were living in this house on campus and i said i don't want to move we've moved so much i i don't want to <laughs> do it again what's another degree I could get wow. <laughs> that would mean that we didn't have to move. And they had a master's in teaching, which is a certificate program. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm going to do this as my backup plan because, you know, uh, being a composer, that's, that's going to happen. I had a, I had a studio that I built in, in, in the basement. Uh, this is back before you could have a laptop that would do it all. You actually, right. had, to, you actually <laughs> had to have a studio and uh, it was a nice studio and I paid for it all with, you know, I didn't finance it. I paid for it all with money I got from composition and it was working, but I was freelance and I was working seven days a week, 12 yeah. hours a day to, to do it. And so I thought I'll have a backup plan, right? I'll get a teaching certificate, but I don't, I don't plan to teach. And I was really clear about that. that this is just my <laughs> fallback. In fact, I even said that in one, like my interview for the program, which in retrospect, don't, don't. I'm surprised you got in saying <laughs> yeah, I, that. I am too, in, in retrospect, because <laughs> You know, we want people who want to teach, you know, yeah. and uh, something happened in the course of that program. Something happened to my heart. And this thing that was my fallback became the thing that I wanted to do more than anything else. Hmm. And I don't know when that happened. I don't know how it happened. I can't point to like uh, a sort of a critical encounter that was like a turning point. Yeah. I just know that by the time I finished, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to teach. Um, and I, I let the composing stuff go. Uh, in fact, I, I actually sold my studio. Yeah. I just, I, no, actually I didn't sell it. I actually gave it away. I gave it to a friend who wanted <laughs> to get into the business and I actually just gave him the stuff. Wow. I said, because this is what I want to do. Right. And people had talked, oh, you should be a teacher. And I'd always kind of poo pooed it when I was younger. And I don't know what it was about being 30 or about, my life experiences that had led me to welcome this thing that I had kind of tried to hold at bay. <laughs> yeah. But when I look back, well, I've been teaching piano lessons for years. I've been teaching 
you know, off and on here and there. And I, and I was been pretty good at it, but I had never thought of it as a career move, right? These were always stop jobs. Yeah. Suddenly it's a career move. So I started teaching uh, high school English, right? Okay. So I fin- finished my MAT and started, got a job teaching high school English. And at the same time, I thought I really don't want to move again, but we're living in campus housing. What's another degree I can get that's <laughs> going to mean that we don't have to move? And so I, so concurrent with my very first year of teaching high school, I also started uh, my doctoral program. Okay. Right. In, in education, like the same year. So I spent the first four years of my high school teaching career also as a doctoral student. Oh, how hard was that? With three young kids. Oh my God. And my wife had just been diagnosed with MS. Oh. And I look back at it now. I'm like, how did I, I have no <laughs> you know, idea how you survived? I, I don't, I don't know either, but I did. I did. And I did more than just, I, it was more than just survival. I mean, I actually, I was a, Again, this is going to sound self-congratulatory, but I, I think we have to be aware of our strengths and yeah. we have to be aware of the things that we're going to, I'm a good teacher. I was a good high school English teacher and I loved my students. I, I used to tell people, I get to talk about a subject I like with people <laughs> I like every yeah. day. That's what I do. I, I like these people. I like literature. It's it's a coup. I mean, I, I don't want to tell them how much I like it because they could pay me less and I'd probably still do it. Right. You know, I, I, I like this so much. And I spent five years as a high school English teacher. And the first four, I was working on my doctorate. And then I finished my doctorate. And I just began thinking, I now have this entirely new skill set, this new research skill set. Um, I, I know a lot more. I'd love to maybe be able to stretch those muscles a little bit and maybe develop as a researcher and a scholar. And that's not impossible to do when you're teaching K-12, but it's hard yeah. uh, because K-12 has um, its own set of challenges and demands that require all that you have to give in that moment. And so there's not a lot of room for, I'm also going to pursue this really heavy lift yeah. over here. And I began looking at tenure track university jobs and again, it didn't, at that point in time, we'd moved off campus, right? So we, we'd actually, <laughs> Finally. yeah, yeah. We'd actually, um, we'd actually, uh, were in an apartment, uh, in a suburb of Seattle. And, uh, so I didn't have the quite the, I have to stay here, but I had three young kids and they were pretty well enmeshed in their lives and their schools and their friend networks. So we, if we could help not moving, we didn't want to. So I'm looking around and I'm looking in New York. And again, we're in Seattle. I'm looking in New York and the Midwest. Yeah. And I found, folks, if you're listening to this for career advice, don't hold out for this. But I found a tenure track job six miles from my house. That's so amazing. That's and, hard. And, and I got it. <laughs> and that's that's two pretty much miracles right yeah. there. The, the tenure track job market is really bad. And it's usually, so for anybody listening that doesn't know, finding a tenure track job usually requires moving at some level. You pretty much apply to anywhere that's open because the the universities where you're located likely are not hiring at the time you're looking. If they are, you're extremely lucky. But usually you're just looking at anything, anywhere that's having, because you also have to find a very specific, like, job within that too. So it's not just anybody hiring for a tenure track professor. It's somebody hiring a tenure track professor in your area, in your research area. And to find that close to home is six miles away. Amazing. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and I, I got the job and that I didn't realize at the time quite what a, how fortunate and how lucky that was. Yeah. But I had had a student when I was teaching high school, I had a student teacher come into my classroom and she was from that university. And so I had developed a relationship with her and with her university field supervisor, who was a faculty member and that had gone really well. And so when the job opened up and I applied for it, I was already a known. Nice. I was a known quantity. And again, that's the happenstance of, of relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I could have planned that necessarily. Yeah. So I, I moved to the tenure track and began teaching people how to teach. And I have been there now. I'm in my 10th year okay. uh, at the university. And in the university, you know, my job has shifted and changed a little bit, but primarily I'm doing now what I was doing 10 years ago, which is taking people who say, I want to do this thing and saying, okay, let's help you do it well. <laughs> Right. That, so that's my job. So really roundabout way of getting to where I am today. And I couldn't have predicted it. And if I tried to build that path, it, (laughs) I couldn't have built it. It just, it's combination of luck and things falling on my lap and being prepared when opportunities arose, you know, cause you don't know if opportunities are going to arise, but when they do, you want to be ready for them. Yeah. And, um, and I happened when the job opened up, I happened to have uh, a degree that set me up. You know, I had the doctoral training and I, I had the, the experience as a mentor teacher and that set me up for teacher education. So that's awesome. Yeah. So that's how I got where I am. <laughs> I'd say my favorite part of that is how you pretty much ended up teaching because you didn't want to move <laughs> from where you were living. Uh, yeah. I mean, so honestly, when I, when I finished my degree, in teaching and I was looking at doctoral programs, if I had had my choice, I would have done a PhD in English lit. Yeah. Uh, I, I love, love English literature. I love teaching English and just from a, like a, a self taught sort of autodidactic standpoint, I yeah. probably have a master's plus 45 in terms of what, what I know in English lit. So that's what I would have done, but that would have required moving because my university didn't offer a PhD in English lit. Right. And <laughs> I had a family. I had yeah. a family and young kids and a wife who has a chronic illness. And those life context things, and I guess a cynic could say, oh, they limited my choices. I'm not, a, I'm not cynical. Uh, and I would say, yeah, they did limit my choices. They did. And, but that's okay. But they also helped you found, find what you really enjoy. They also helped me find what I want. And I, I tend to be a little bit more in the, a little bit less in the, uh, I'm a bit more of a pragmatist, I guess. So yeah. a little bit less of an idealist and a bit more of a pragmatist. Well, what can I do? I, well, what do I want to do? Great. But what can I actually do? And let me do that well. And let me find joy in that. And I'm fortunate that my heart and my, opportunities. I'm not sure if they lined up or if my heart changed to fit my opportunities. I don't know which one it was, but doesn't really matter. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And I love that. There's so many choices that go into careers that we don't think about. I have several students all the time that are, I have to stay here because of X and X reasons. And sometimes they seem like that's not the right choice or, you know, they seem scared. Like I know I should be able to like pick up and move anytime I want. And I'm like, 
when did we get to that point where like picking up and moving was like the baseline Mm -hmm. and staying where you're at is not supposed to be the answer. And I'm like, I don't know, just do whatever, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, find out what confines you really have. You know, if you have to stay where you're at, stay where you're at and figure something out in there and that's fine. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to add that, you know, my, I love my job and I, I love what I do. It is not the only defining factor in my life though. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a father and, and a husband. And uh, right now we live, uh, we have a house in the suburbs of Seattle and we have a little farm in our backyard and, nice. you know, and, and we grow vegetables and I, we've put a lot of effort into that and to, to, you know, if an opportunity took me away, it would take a lot. Right. For me to say, because we're invested here in this community, in this space, and that's as much a defining part of me. And I have as much obligation to the people in my lives, and yeah. in my life, as I do to my career aspirations. And I can't make a career decision in a vacuum that doesn't take <laughs> my family into account. And yeah, and for that's going to be different for everyone. For some people, they really need to get away from their family, and and yep. I understand that. In my case, that that's not the case for me. And so I'm, and I'm okay. I'm okay with that. I don't feel torn between those things. Yep. And it can be personal too. You can have your own other aspect of your personality or your life that you want to foster somewhere. Um, For me, where I live, I've lived in a lot of places. I definitely moved for my career, for my husband's, for both. Um, I've lived in a lot of places and I've, I've figured out that where I live matters a little bit to me which I was, when I was young, I always thought I, like, I want to move to like LA and Southern California and that's going to make me happy. And in my head, I was like, well, that can't be true. Like moving somewhere can't make you happy. And then I did. And I moved to a lot of different places and I moved to places that I was not so happy in. And I've moved to places that I was really happy in. And of course it's not the place itself. And it's not just that in isolation, but I have figured out that for me personally, where I live matters enough that it could make me unhappy enough if I'm staying somewhere that's not the right fit. And so sometimes it's just your own personality and your own person and whoever you want to be that takes you or keeps you in a certain spot. And those can change over time. Yes. I mean, you're the cognitive psychologist, (laughs) but I'm thinking about Eric Erickson, right? And sort of lifespan development and these we have these kind of predictable changes in our lives. We we get married or we retire or And so my kids, my oldest is 20. My middle kid is going off to college next year. And my youngest is a junior in high school. And so my wife and I are on the edge of this. Well, pretty soon, you know, fingers crossed, it might just be (laughs) the two of us. And we would have different opportunities at that point in time and could think about, well, do we want to move? Our parents are aging, Right. right? So do we want to be near, and they live far away. So do we want to be near, uh, family. My brother is in the process of adopting. Do we want to be near to my brother and, and, right. and his growing family? And so as we get older, those, those considerations change and location and the value we place on, or any one of those factors, the, the values change. And we weight those factors differently as our circumstances Very. change. And that's okay. I make yep. different decisions at 46 than I did at 21. I know in my twenties, all I wanted to do was be far away from family as possible. Not, I didn't have any bad experiences. I just wanted to be more on my own, more independent. I wanted to be away. I moved anywhere I could. Mm -hmm. I did anything I wanted. And now I have two small children. They're five and three. um, And we were living in Florida 
and my family lives in California and that plane ride with an infant was atrocious <laughs> and I hated it. And I was like, I'm not, if, if I stay here, I'm just pretty much never going to see family for a few years. Cause I'm not going to do it all the time. And I couldn't do it by myself. And so we ended up, we looked for any job that was more on the West coast. And that was kind of what led me here was we had family in this town, got lucky that there was a job opening up at the same university. My -hmm. sister's a few hours away. It was very easy. And so that kind of went into that decision as well. And that's what you're saying. It was at any other point in my life, I would not have made the decision Mm -hmm. to like come home and be closer to family, but with two small kids, you need help as much as you can get. You said it well, I don't have anything to add to that. That's (laughs) that's exactly right. Um, Well, we're close to time. So my last question I usually ask is, and it's a hard one, if you could boil down all the advice that you have for somebody either starting out or changing careers, what would be the biggest piece of advice you'd give? I kind of assumed that would be the last question. (laughs) And so I've, I've been thinking about it. Uh, you, you like stories. So, um, if you've seen Schitt's Creek, uh, Moira Rose, who is a, uh, a former actress who is uh, older now and is trying to get back in the game is offered a job on this terrible straight to DVD B movie, (laughs) right? Called the the crows have eyes too. And it's terrible. And the script is everybody on the set is dialing it in. And she comes on a set and says, I know this is not great but let's do the very, very, very best job we can do with this less than ideal set. And her attitude is infectious and it spreads. And the movie ends up being one of those movies that should be really bad. It ends up being better than it ought to have been. Right. <laughs> well, I think about that as career advice, right? I mean, certainly in your 20s and even maybe throughout your life, none of us are ever going to find the perfect career where everything is perfect. So my advice to anybody out there who's seeking a career or is changing careers is um, do the best job you can do wherever you are. Right. And um, if you are in what you consider to be a meaning menial job, that's maybe <laughs> beneath you, quote unquote, come in every day and just knock it out of the park. Do a really, not because you're going to get accolades from the boss or because it's going to move you up, although those things might happen, but because when you bring your best to the job, you're bringing your best. And that is inherently valuable. Uh, That doesn't mean that you don't look for other opportunities, but uh, that's something I wish I'd known when I was younger uh, because I would have been more satisfied at some of the jobs I had. Um, I don't know that it would have changed any trajectories for me, but it would have, would have softened my heart a little bit on, and I would have yeah. been a bit less grumpy <laughs> and <laughs> I, I would have been the person who comes in and is positive yeah. and is, um, contributing to the place instead of coming in and being the person who sits in the break room and, you know, complains. Worse. Yeah. We, we all know <laughs> yeah. those people don't be that person. Yeah. Don't, whatever. And those people are in every field right? Don't be that person. Come in, be solution oriented, be, be excited to bring your best. And uh, if you can do that, you will find a degree or a measure of contentment. Yeah. 
wherever you are. That's great advice. I've been both of those people. I've been the SMI. grumpy, I've been yeah, the so grumpy, not good one in a, a place. And, um, I've been fortunate that I actually like my job now too. So I can easily be the happier best self and it's a lot more fun. It's yeah, just I've a lot been, more day to day as well. And I, <laughs> for my own sake, I'm choosing to be the non-cynical. All right, yeah. let's make this work. Yeah. Person. And it's also good for, you know, my colleagues who have to live with me. So, yeah. Like you said, it's infectious. It changes the environment of the place. If the environment is what you're not liking, coming in with a different attitude could change the environment potentially. It might not. Mm-hmm. And that might just be a time to walk away, but it might. Right. But you can walk away with your head held high. Yeah. I did the best job I could at that place. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Career Journey Podcast. Head over to our website at careerjourneypodcast.com for more information and the latest episodes. See you next time.